0: all righty good morning again all right uh, a rousing good morning to all Uh, let's open our bibles to the revelation of jesus christ last book of your bible we're in chapter 11 and we're going to finish that chapter looking at verses 15 through 19 in our verse-by-verse study of this glorious book revelation 11 verse 15 through 19 the topic at the sound of the last trumpet The world's kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will rule forever and ever. That's that's my grandson. He's the only one who can play that shofar. Uh, It's like just, you know, one of those things. So anyway, so that's our topic. The title, One King to Rule Them All, One King to Bind Them one king to bring them all, and in his likeness find them. Let's pray. Father, thanks for letting us have a little bit of fun this morning with the trumpet that we're going to read about. In reality, Lord, the the history of it is going to be anything but fun. And yet at the same time, we see your heart reaching out to lost men and women in that future generation, Lord. You're doing that now. In a different way, you're doing it through, in many ways, uh, the weaknesses that we have, the uh, sufferings that we suffer, Lord, as the church, showing others, Lord, the grace of God and the mercy of God. Today, Lord, as we get into this chapter, uh, even though we're not really in it, Lord, we want to learn from it. And of course, we want to see you glorified and honored. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. World domination. Who knew it could be so funny? Marvin the Martian wanted to destroy Earth because it interfered with his view of Venus. We owe Bugs Bunny an outstanding debt of gratitude. Mad scientist Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz oversees evil incorporated in the world of Phineas and Ferb. He's bent on dominating what he calls the tri-state area. Agent P, also known as Perry the Platypus, foils his innators every time the most extraordinary cartoon menace is the brain a genius lab mouse whose genes have been spliced one of his brilliant schemes for taking over the world was creating brainania a fictional island nation in an attempt to exploit the united states for billions of dollars in foreign aid if only world domination or destruction was comical genghis khan alexander the great Attila the Hun, Charlemagne, Cyrus the Great, Napoleon, the Sultans of the Ottoman Empire, Adolf Hitler, Khan, Nunian Singh. There was nothing funny in any of their incursions. One man will rule the world. He is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 15. The world's kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will rule forever and ever. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when you hear the seventh trumpet, our God reigns. Number two, when you hear the seventh trumpet, our God returns. Let's take a look at our God reigning in verse 15. Eschatos is the Greek word for last. The study of Bible prophecy, as many of you know, is called eschatology. It's the study of the last or the last things. Like any discipline of study, eschatology has its vocabulary. Dispensationalism and parousia are terms you don't use every day, but that are common when we discuss Bible prophecy. Proleptic is a word that is common in eschatology, not just eschatology, but it has a a, a real meaning there. It describes a future event as if it had already taken place. A character in a drama might address someone and say, you are a dead man, especially some kind of a crime drama or something. So you've done this. Now you are a dead man. Well, he's alive, but he's also a dead man because his death is certain in the mind of the speaker. Jesus' rule over the world's kingdom is represented as already having taken place, even though it remains in the future. And so it's proleptic, uh, unlike the things that man might promise or say what Jesus has said, what the word of God has said will come to pass exactly as he said. And so we can say that the Lord is reigning in a proleptic sense that that is the inevitable outcome of human history. And so verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ He shall reign forever and ever. I want to do the hallelujah chorus, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah. You didn't stand. Anyway, never mind. The the apostle John was in heaven to receive the revelation. A call went out from heaven to every creature for someone worthy to take a scroll out of the right hand of God the Father. No one on earth, under the earth, anywhere was found worthy except one. Jesus took the scroll. scroll was sealed with seven seals. As Jesus opened each seal, the great tribulation advanced on earth. The first five seals proceeded at a relatively slow pace, bringing plagues upon the inhabitants of earth from the natural world and from supernatural creatures. When the sixth seal was opened, we had what amounted to a preview of what was contained in the seventh and final seal, When the seventh and final seal was opened, we were made aware that seven angels had seven trumpets to blow. The sounding of the seventh trumpet is still not the end. We will see seven additional angels who pour out seven bowls of the last of God's wrath upon those who inhabit earth. Then Jesus returns. We won't see the bowls until chapter 16. The chronological action is paused, To reveal additional information and insight about events transpiring on earth during the great tribulation, one commentator called them underplots or what we would call subplots, but he uh, called them underplots. And so you see this chronology, seals, trumpets, bowls, taking us straight through the tribulation. Uh, But we bounce back and forth in some of the intervening chapters to give details about what is actually happening on earth and how it goes down. Loud voices in heaven make this proleptic proclamation. I love the drama in all this and in this book. I envision the inhabitants of heaven in great joy chanting together, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I'm not a big fan of over-exuberance. It's overdone. This chant is a a once-in-a-creation declaration that ought to inspire over, over over-exuberance. There's a sense in which this verse is what the entire Bible is building up to from the Garden of Eden forward. From the time that Adam sinned in the Garden, and then God's plan of redemption and restoration, and then it coming to fruition uh, and then him working it out through the last of the last days. It's, it's an amazing thing that, that can only be said once. God became a man, rose from the dead, is God's anointed Messiah. The God-man is the one coming to, do, to make the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now you've been paying attention and you're wondering why in quoting verse 15 I have said both the kingdoms of this world, plural, and the kingdom, singular. Actually, the singular is the preferred translation. It better communicates the extent of Jesus' kingship. It's not that he's going to be the king over Israel as with a bunch of other kings and just be more powerful. There will still be nations and kingdoms in the world, but Jesus will be the undisputed king of the kingdom of the world, of the kingdom of men. To paraphrase the British, the sun will never set, On the son of God. Kingdom refers to the reign and rule of the entire earth that God intended to be under mankind's stewardship. Adam and Eve forfeited their stewardship for a fig. That's going to be a title at some point. Jot that down. Forfeited for a fig. It's a good one. How do I know it was a fig? You thought it was an apple. Uh, It's not that I don't like figs. I don't, but I don't like them. But... uh, it, because they covered themselves with what kind of leaves? Fig leaves, not apple tree leaves, but fig leaves. And so they probably went for the first leafy leaf that they could find. Uh, and uh, I, I assumed that it was a fig. No one knows. They forfeited that stewardship. Satan became the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working as a king in the sons of disobedience. How did it come to this? One scholar said, In the Garden of Eden, one can see a perfect kingdom state that man was intended to enjoy for all eternity, but listening to the enemy of the king, Satan, man rebelled against the king and forsook his righteous rule. The just king threw the rebels out of the garden, denouncing their citizenship with its rights and privileges. This rebellion of pseudo-independence led to mankind becoming a rogue city-state. All of history is the story of the king humbling himself to reconcile this rebellious rogue faction of earth back into his kingdom. Jesus humbled himself to enter our world as a man. Sometimes we need to really reflect on that. I mean, we know it so well. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the God-man, God become flesh. We can't even imagine what that means, but, but we can think and meditate and think, for God to love the world so much, the second person of the Trinity would come as a man to live among us. I mean, I don't even know. I've heard different analogies before, but you know, I have a lot of ants in our backyard. Do you have a lot of ants in your backyard? At least they're not biting me. They're all over me when I garden, but they're not biting me. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm not too upset. But I think it would be like me becoming an ant in order to relate to ants and get in their little ant lives and tell them, I don't know what I'd tell them, with the gospel or something, but, but you know what I mean? I mean, it's be like becoming an ant. Uh, it's probably even, obviously it's worse than that, but it's more like becoming an amoeba, right? I mean, God became man, fully God and fully human. I, uh, that's humility. As the God-man, he died on the cross. That's even worse. It's one thing to become the God-man, but it's another thing to subject yourself to mankind and let them kill you. He arose from the dead, thereby defeating sin and death and the devil. That is why he uniquely can take the scroll and open its seals. You'll never get other religions and philosophies to agree with this, but, but let's say everybody believed that there was a scroll like we do. And a seven-sealed scroll that somebody needs to take and open in order to put things right. Right away, you and I would understand, yeah, Buddha can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. Confucius can't do that. In fact, he would just say, Confucius say cannot open seals. (laughs) Or something stupid like that. Uh, nobody you know the Greek gods can't do that I mean we understand and not just because we're Christians but because of the whole understanding of the of, of, of sin and redemption that oh yeah only God becoming a man could do that and we have the corner on that as far as preaching and what we believe and it's true Jesus will establish a Kingdom on the earth for a thousand years when he returns. We'll see this millennial thousand year kingdom in chapter 20. And then after those thousand years are finished, he rules over new heavens and a new earth forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. If you're looking for a way to start a conversation about prophecy or eschatology, we might say, try this. The next time someone not here at church, but out in the world, asks, how are you? Tell them you are proleptic. First of all, they'll be stunned. They'll think, wow, how long has that been going on? Is there any medication for it? I mean, you really string this out. But it would open up the door to a sympathetic follow-up question, and um, you could maybe explain why this is important. Verses 16 through 19, when you hear the seventh trumpet, our God returns. Israel was familiar with trumpets. Trumpeters trumpeted for many purposes. They trumpeted to assemble people. They trumpeted to give directions to those people. They trumpeted to alert people to coming danger or judgment, to celebrate holy days and sacred events, to direct troop movements in the field, and to signal an announcement or proclamation, and many other things. In his masterful chapter on the resurrection and rapture of the church. The Apostle Paul writes, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We be humble Gentiles easily confused by trumpets. The last trumpet of the church age is not the seventh trumpet in the great tribulation. The two events are separated by the seven-year great tribulation. The last trumpet of the church age resurrects and raptures the bride of Jesus Christ before the great tribulation. The last trumpet in the great tribulation releases God's final wrath upon those who inhabit the earth, preparing the way for Jesus to return with us from heaven. And so I guess what I'm saying is sometimes people will try and show you that, well, wait, Paul said the rapture would happen at the last trump and that last trumpet is, you know, in the revelation. And so the rapture is not a pre-tribulation rapture. It's a post-tribulation rapture. And again, it's because we don't understand trumpets. Probably tomorrow, let's say you work at a desk. Uh, they're not going to announce break time or lunchtime by blowing different tunes on a trumpet, right? They don't come by and go, oh, lunchtime. time. No, it, it's, you know, I mean, you go to school sometimes there's bells or you know buzzers and things like that but you know there's nobody on the roof in stockings going trumpet. oh second period just began you know so so we read this in revelation and in corinthians and think oh my the last trumpet we're all wrong no no, trumpets were used all the time you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a trumpet in israel i mean so don't get confused about that so verse sixteen the twenty four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. Nowhere are we told the identity of the twenty four elders. you read commentaries or listen to Bible studies uh, we all have our guesses and and reasons and all but uh, we're just not told. Some suggestions have more credibility than others but they're all speculation. The elders could be human beings who represent the church. this is a uh, famous, uh, you know, uh, theory that uh, the church is raptured and is in heaven before God on thrones. Uh, there are lots of problems with that, and there are many different varieties of that. And again, the biggest problem is the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. My best guess now is that they are created supernatural beings, probably in order of angels. Now, the Bible doesn't say that either, but it does say that God has supernatural beings around him. The Old Testament describes what some call a divine council or a divine assembly of supernatural beings. For example, Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God takes his stand in the divine assembly among divine beings. He renders judgment. Psalm 89 asks, Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. And then in Deuteronomy 32 8, When the high God gave the nations their stake, gave them their place on earth, he put each of the peoples within the boundaries under the care of divine guardians. So there seemed to be some kind of guardians or council or advisory group, definitely under God, not at all equal with him. He is the almighty, they are not, that um, he utilizes for certain purposes. And and so that's uh, as most likely as anything else, and it makes more biblical sense to me. We are the bride of Christ, and uh, the way I think of it is we're probably in the bride's room, getting ready to return with him. Well, where do you normally find the bride on, on a wedding day? Getting ready to appear, readying herself, making herself as beautiful as possible. And the end of Revelation, we'll see that when we come back with the Lord, we're described as having made ourselves ready. And it's not Our works on the earth. It's something more than that. And so anyway, um, the fact that we might not be in the 24 elders doesn't change anything else that we're studying. So verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The heartfelt criticism many have against God is that he doesn't stop bad things from happening. Far from being thanked, Men revile God for his apparent lack of involvement and concern. I've told you dozens of times, I think this is the major blockade to non-believers uh, thinking more about God, and even for some believers, the fact that awful, terrible things happen in our world. I just read a story the other day because of uh, road rage down in uh, Southern California, Yorba Belinda mom was on her way to drop off kindergarten student at school at a christian school calvary chapel yorba linda as a matter of fact and there was an incident in the the diamond lane she responded inappropriately and the other car drove by and shot into her car multiple times killing the toddler and so all of us myself included say lord why why and then you're reminded well, it's because of something that happened a few centuries ago, a few millennia ago in the Garden of Eden. Adam, with free will, decided he was going to rebel against God, and he brought sin and death, evil, into our universe, into, our crea- into God's creation. The way I look at it, you know, people say, well, why isn't God doing anything? Do you know what he did? He promised at that moment in the Garden that he would come and humble himself as a man among the, his own creation who hated him, who had just rejected him and would go on rejecting him, he would become that man and he would die for them. So when people say the Lord has, isn't doing anything, hasn't done anything, he paid the ultimate price. He died. He took the bullet for it, even though you don't understand it that way. And then he rose from the dead to conquer all these things so that we could live forever with him. The hard part for us is that that plan, because it involves human beings and our hearts and our free will and our rebellious natures, that plan takes about 7,000 years to unfold and to come to fruition. And we shake our heads and we say, such a long time with so much suffering. And God says, yes, it is. But remember, a thousand years are like a day to me and a day like a thousand years. So from God's perspective, it's fast-tracked. You know, how they're always talking about how these vaccines have been fast-tracked, would have taken 3,000 years to get them on the market, but instead two days later, here's your vaccine, you know, that kind of thing. The Lord in heaven, before the foundations of the world, he said, look, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to fast-track this thing. It's only going to take 7,000 years. (laughs) But if you read the Bible from that overview perspective, telling that story, you understand, oh, yeah, it took a long time for God to, 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 you know, come through this nation and and these people and for all these things to unfold. Verse 17 is where we're at. I was going to read it again because I was confused, but not total confusion, just a momentary confusion, not even a senior moment. Just This would be a senior moment. Just the opposite is true. We're in Adam when he sinned. God was with Adam in the garden promising to redeem us and restore earth through the price that he would pay. As I said, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to suffer and die in our place. Not only has God done something about sin, death, and Satan, he conquered them in making the ultimate sacrifice, and he did it to save the very people who hate and revile him. It is a testimony to God's compassion that he has held our rebellious planet together while he providentially worked out his plan to reign forever and ever. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. Uh, Every now and then you'll hear someone say or you'll read that the Bible is its own best commentary. Psalm 2 is a better commentary on this part of verse 18 than I can provide. And so let's read a portion of it. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress and in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Mankind rebelled. God responded with mercy and grace. He took his wrath against sin upon himself for our sake. The great tribulation is a time when he shall speak to mankind in his wrath. The plagues and the judgments are God's speaking to mankind, and what he's saying is repent and be saved. It's harsh, obviously, but previous measures didn't work. See, right now, we're in this church age Everything is about the love of God and us laying down our lives and taking up our cross and suffering in, you know, to fill up the sufferings of Christ so that people will see the glory and the wonder of God in and through us. And you know, I want to be careful saying this, but God is pretty easy on sinners, relatively speaking. He's making this invitation through our lives and through our preaching of the gospel. And things are going to get a lot harsher in the Great Tribulation. If you've raised children, you've experienced this. Why, why won't your kids just obey the first time? Right? Honey, don't do that. I told you not to do that. I mean, it just, you know, it, it, and so you, you know, without getting into a parenting class or anything like that, if you're a parent you know that there are different levels of discipline, don't you? You know, there there, there might be a, a corrective word, and then after that, a time out, and then you start taking privileges away, and you start taking the door off the hinges. And In the old days, before, you know, in my family, when nobody was a Christian, it was, I was always going to be sent to military school. At, at the end, I wanted to. I thought, okay, <laughs> just... Sounds cool. Pew, pew, pew. But, uh, you know, I didn't know what that meant. But, uh, you know, so you understand. We, we understand this. We understand that there has to be more and more discipline. Criminals. Okay, you do that again. Okay, you did it again. Okay, you, you know, used to be we'd lock them up longer. Now we don't lock them up at all. But that's another thing. You understand? So, so God is just saying, hey, this is it. Everything's on the table. It's the great tribulation. I've tried everything else to reach you. Now I'm going to send locusts out of a pit to attack you. Why? Because I want you to think about getting saved. Because what's going to happen in hell for eternity is worse than this. And so that's what's going on. The time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The prophets and saints of the Old Testament Do not receive their glorified physical, I can live in heaven bodies until the Lord returns. The rewarding here has to do with them. We will have been rewarded earlier than these guys. Our rewarding occurs after the resurrection and rapture of the church. And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Jesus described his second coming as a time of separating who he calls sheep or goats, meaning believers or non-believers, Believers who survive the Great Tribulation will become the first settlers of the Millennial Kingdom. They will remain in their human bodies. Non-believers who survive the Great Tribulation will be consigned to Hades to await their final eternal judgment. The declaration of the final judgment comes with time to repent. In wrath, God remembers mercy and seeks to save. He keeps warning that a day is coming when all offers to be saved will be off the table. But until then, he is not willing that any should perish, and he is the Savior of all men. But in the tribulation, it's so well spelled out. You know, 1,260 days uh, times two, three and a half years times two, 1,000 however many days times two, and then it's done. There's no more chance. Today, we tell people, hey, uh, you know, you could leave here and die in a car crash, or road rage could take you. And that's true. Or you'd have a heart attack, or this, that's true, but nobody believes it's true. They think, well, yeah, that's potentially true, but, you know, it's probably not going to happen. But same result, you know, we're pointed unto, man once to die, and after this comes judgment. And so the, but people don't generally believe, in. so God says, I'm going to say the same thing with some props that are going to help you understand how serious this is hail and fire and brimstone and witnesses and all this kind of stuff so that guys you know will get the the idea that they should get saved those who destroy the earth are the main antagonists in the great tribulation the devil the beast the false prophet and others verse 19 then the temple of god was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings noises thunderings and earthquake and great hail The earthly tabernacle and later the Jerusalem temples were designed to illustrate God's great salvation. The penalty for sin is death. In the temple, a sacrificed lamb could die in your stead. After the lamb was slain, it was up to the priest to perform the necessary rituals as your mediator before God. All of it illustrated that Jesus is the lamb. He was sacrificed in your stead on your behalf. And then in the book of Hebrews, we learn he is also the priest. He's your mediator in taking you before God. And so all that happened in the temple on earth, the tabernacle and temple, it was all about Jesus. And there's lots of different you know, things that you can go into as far as typology, but the basic truth is death, and then you can approach God. Jesus died for you, and he brings you to God. And now we are in God's presence. It turns out the tabernacle and temples were copies of a temple that's in heaven, or that was in heaven. It still is. It served to illustrate God's great salvation to the inhabitants of heaven. Uh, Angels don't know what God's doing. We're bozos and boneheads and knuckleheads. And it's like, what, what are you doing? And the Lord, you know, can you imagine being an angel, a divine created being, and figuring out that what? The second person of the Trinity is going to earth as a human being? That's disgusting. And so there's this illustration given to them as well. We learn that there will be a temple on earth during the millennial kingdom, and it too will illustrate God's great salvation for the generations born during the kingdom age. There will be no temple in eternity. Bible says at the end in Revelation that the Lamb and God will be its temple god and the lamb will be its temple and its light no need for temple ritual then everything will be holy uh and by the way we are the temple of god today right collectively and individually we have no need for ritual approach to god i only mention that because every few years it becomes popular for christians to kind of move into a kind of judaism where not just celebrating a Passover Seder at Passover, but they start getting into the feasts and the festivals and they start hearing things like, well, we should, we should do this because it'll enhance our knowledge of the Bible and, you know, and we should actually be a little bit more Jewish. No, no, not that I don't want to. I don't need to. We are the temple of God. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're free from that ritual. It can't help us. It's done. It's over. And so any step in that direction is a step away from God. The veil has been torn. We're in the presence of God. I don't need to go on the other side of the veil again and, and do some kind of ritual. We think of the temple as a massive complex. Its essence was a 675-square-foot tent. It consisted of two chambers, the holy place, and then the holy of holies separated by a thick curtain. With its separate lid called the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant was the only article of furniture in the Holy of Holies. It was the place on earth God met with Israel through the representation of the priest. The Ark disappeared from history by the time of the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C. The Holy of Holies in the Second Temple was an empty chamber. When Roman General Pompey conquered Jerusalem around 63 B.C., he demanded the privilege of entering the Holy of Holies when he did, he came out saying he could not understand what all the interest was about the sanctuary when it was an empty room. Where is the, uh, the lost ark? It's not in a warehouse, as we believe uh, from watching Indiana Jones. Oh, maybe it is. I don't know. It could be because we don't know where it is, so maybe it's there. Jeremiah may have hidden the ark in a cave in Mount Nebo before the Babylonians looted the temple. He knew they were coming, and they did uh, loot the temple and they would have wanted to perhaps protect the Ark. Others suggest the Ark is hidden in a cave near the Dead Sea Scrolls site. Temple Institute in Jerusalem's old city dedicated to rebuilding the Jewish temple says that the Ark is under the Temple Mount, and it will be found when the temple is rebuilt. Another interesting theory is that the Ark was taken from ancient Jerusalem in the days of King Solomon. While there are numerous variations of this story, The common thread centers on Menelik, a son supposedly fathered by King Solomon, born to the queen of Sheba. Ancient Sheba is Ethiopia. Now, while this union is not mentioned in the Bible, it has a long tradition in Ethiopia, and it's preserved in some chronicles of the uh, Ethiopian uh, uh, system. The Ethiopians insist they do have the ark and will bring it when the Messiah comes to set up his kingdom. You can watch any number of Discovery Channel specials on the ark, and they'll show you this building in Ethiopia with a little fence around it where they say they have the ark. What's interesting is that in Zephaniah 3, verse 10, the Old Testament prophet says, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And they say that, He means that they will bring the offering of the ark back to Jerusalem once the temple is rebuilt. Truth is, we may never find the ark. Jeremiah also said, Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. The second temple stood for over 500 years without the ark. Building the temple, uh, excuse me, building the tribulation temple is not dependent upon discovering the lost ark. The main import here of seeing the ark is it's a reminder of God's covenants with Israel. It's the ark of the covenant. And of course, talking about the law that was inside the ark, the tablets of the law, but also it reminds us of God's other covenants with Israel. He made a, a promises to Abraham, uh, to uh, David and to Moses and they were unconditional promises Uh, they they had many conditional aspects but some were unconditional for example he told Abraham your descendants are going to be as the sand of the sea and this is the land I will give you this is your land God didn't say that, that there were any conditions on either of those and then he told David you will always have a son to reign on your throne no conditions and so people who think that the future kingdom is some kind of spiritual it's among us kind of thing and or that we have to bring it to pass by passing good laws or whatever there is a real literal kingdom coming because god promised israel that it was and we can't just ignore israel uh, lots of theology says well the, israel failed and so now everything that was israel's is now the church's no these were unconditional promises to the physical descendants of abraham not just the spiritual descendants. And so it's the Ark of the Covenant. And again, thinking you're in the first century, you're a Jew, you're reading this or having it read to you. Your temple is destroyed. It's been looted. Your city is destroyed. It's been looted. You are dispersed all over the world. And since we have history on our side, we know, and you will be for a couple of thousand years, and everywhere you go you will be hated and despised and persecuted but then you hear and you read there will be a kingdom and a temple in which to worship our god Uh, it doesn't make everything better but what a hope what a what a dream what a joy meanwhile on earth lightnings noises thunderings earthquake great hail it's a prelude to the finale it's a it's a verse reminding us that the events of the great tribulation are almost through with the blowing of the seventh trumpet here at the beginning, it will release in chapter 16. After we get some background information, the seven vials or bowls of judgment, bam, 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 right after one another, like a woman in labor starting slow in the first three and a half years. And then in the next three and a half years, not a woman in labor, that's a nine month thing. Uh, in the next three and a half years, getting closer and closer in contractions until the birth. Summarizing these verses, one commentator wrote, apart from the outpourings of the bowls, which occur in rapid succession, there is little chronological movement from this point until chapter 19 and the second coming of Christ. Events and situations are now introduced, which are concurrent with the seals and the trumpets. These serve to emphasize the dramatic climax of this period in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are proleptic. We live in the present, knowing God's prophecies and promises of God, knowing that they are a certainty, rather. You are sitting in the mortgage-free building of Calvary Hanford. I have to get that in every few weeks in case you missed last week's stunning announcement. You're sitting here. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians, God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. So you, you could read this and think, well, we're sitting here, but we're also sitting in heaven well, that's a certain future that you have. You will be there, and, they can, and Paul can speak of it as if it's true now because it is certain, because it's in the word of God. It's a promise of God, and all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so I can live from that perspective. I can live as if I am seated in heaven because I am. I believe that I am from the, in the future, and I can represent the Lord in living uh, in the present as if the future made a difference to me. It's impossible to do that apart from the yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit. But with him, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you.